Today's sermon text is Philippians 1, 1 through 11. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 980. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, let's pray together. Father, we uh, request your help as we dive into your word. And help us by your spirit to understand it, to comprehend it. And then to leave this place and apply it. Uh, Father, let what we are about to do, what we're about to learn, what you're about to teach us and say to us, have impact well beyond uh, this gathering. Um, Let it reverberate throughout our lives in the city and among all nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, so um, I received a few notes uh, from some of you. One of those notes in particular I found quite uh, touching, sort of. Um, Not going to name names, uh, just going to have to speculate about who wrote this. There may be some things in it that tip people off, but not naming names. So the letter in question states this. Dear Mr. Corey, thank you so much for being our pastor. I know uh, that you put so much time and thought into shepherding this church. You don't know how much I appreciate you. It's going well so far. Starting to feel encouraged as I read this. Uh, they continue. You are one of the main reasons that I have grown in my knowledge of God and matured as a Christian. I will miss your preaching. It's the part where I start to tear up reading this, uh, this note. Uh, but then this unnamed person decides to conclude the note. I will miss your preaching, but... It will be nice to have shorter sermons. <laughs> Exclamation point, smiley face. Doing pretty well right up to the end there. Uh, I was also given another card uh, by another unnamed person that uh, this particular card had the word goodbye in six different languages on the front of it. Not sure if, what that means. All right. So feel in love uh, this morning. Uh, if you are a guest with us and you feel lost, that's understandable. Uh, this is not my last Sunday as a member of this church. 
but it is it somewhat marks uh, my last Sunday as uh, the preaching pastor of this church, if you want to put it uh, that way. So that mantle has been uh, passed to Ryan Adams. Um, so eight years ago around this time, not sure uh, where some of you were at that time or if you remember what we were covering, but I chose to come out of the gate eight years ago uh, and walk us through the book of Philippians. We actually started that series in January of 2015. I was affirmed at this church in February of 15, so it carried. It was an eight-week sermon series through the book of uh, Philippians. And looking back, I can't exactly recall uh, why I chose Philippians. Uh, I'm sure there were many reasons. Um, but at that time, uh, this, this, this church, Philadelphia, had endured a good bit of hardship. It wasn't exactly the brightest spot in uh, the history of PBC. And Philippians is filled with encouragement. So that was a good reason to dive into uh, Philippians. Um, but there was also this sort of dreaming in me at that time about what I wanted this church to be and the type of church that I wanted to be a part of and what direction I might want us to go. And with that sort of dreaming, it's hard to find a better destination than uh, Philippians. It's, it's hard to find a better church to emulate than the church at uh, Philippi. Uh, it, it's hard to read this letter, if you know it well, it's hard to read it and not want to be a part of the church at Philippi. Um, your initial thought when you read something like Corinthians is not, hey, I would love to be a part of that church. I wish that was my church. But Philippians makes you sort of envious in a good way of what they seem to have uh, based on the way that the Apostle Paul who wrote this, based on the way he views them and speaks of them. Um, I look back over my sermon notes on uh, Philippians uh, from that series in the very first sermon. And one of the things one of the first things I said was this. And by the way, this would have been the first of January. So I seemed a bit presumptuous because I wasn't voted in until um, until February. But this is what I said. I'm praying that God would take these eight weeks in this letter and use it to transform our lives as individual Christians and especially as a body of believers. My prayer is that we will all look different and this church will look different as a result of our time in this letter. Uh, I obviously have zero ability to make a connection between a prayer and an outcome. Uh, I can't tell you that my prayer caused an outcome or our prayers caused a certain outcome, but I can't help but think that God has been gracious to us and continues to answer that prayer and many more that were probably spoken uh, like it. Um, he, uses, he used his word then and he continues to use his word now um, to cause us to look different. Uh, to look hopefully more like the church at Philippi, this church that I, I, I'm envious of and would love to emulate. So, eight years later, welcome back to uh, the book of Philippians. Uh, let's end where we started, so to speak. So here, here's the game plan. We're going to cover this church, this text a lot differently uh, than we did back then. Uh, I've, I've done sermons where I've preached the same thing twice. And I had a few years between it, but I've actually had some of you come up to me after those sermons and show me your notes in your Bible and go, man, I was following along good because you said the exact same thing you said last time. So I'm not going to say the exact same thing I said eight years ago. Um, so there's a lot going on in these uh, first 11 verses, like a lot of Pauline letters, the beginning sort of foreshadows, uh, forecasts what's coming in the letter. It sets it up. So uh, most of the introductions, to these letters are really thick. So you could unpack the entire letter just in 
in their introduction. But so there's a ton here to learn from Paul himself. There's a ton here to learn about this partnership between Paul and this church. But but I want to kind of deviate from that a little bit. And here's what I want to do. I want to look on the surface as well as in the background. And I want to see what God through Paul can teach us about what I'll label a gospel church. And this is kind of where I want to leave you. What, what can we see on the surface here? and What's going on behind the scenes? What can we extrapolate from this about a gospel church? Uh, we don't have a picture of a perfect church here. There were still problems in Philippi based on some of the stuff we, lead, uh, uh, we read. Uh, the perfect church does not exist. The church has problems. Every church has problems. This, has pro- this church has problems because I'm here and you are here. Any church that is made up of people, which is every church, will have problems with Philippi is still worth emulating. So what can we glean from the opening of this letter um, that might give us what I'll call a blueprint for a healthy gospel church, a blueprint for a healthy gospel church? And I'll give this qualification if I'm going to use that word blueprint. I'm not going to say everything that would go into a blueprint for a healthy gospel church. Uh, this is one letter in the midst of a uh, of a book of a Bible that has a lot of books that talk a lot about uh, the church. So there's a lot more that could be added to this. We're not even going to cover everything that this text would tell us uh, about the church. So much more to be said. So don't think, well, this is this is everything. This is this is all we need. No, this is just some of it. This is part of the blueprint. But it's it's a, hopefully it's a good one. But um, I, I think what we're going to glean from this text describes what. What I think we have. Okay. So I'm not. uh, I I wanted us to be able to emulate Philippians eight years ago. I think we have this now. Um, So um, I just pray that like Paul, I think, is praying here that we would we would gain it in increasing measure. We would gain it in increasing measure. So. Uh, with that, um, I took a little bit different approach. I actually took an approach that I used to take, it seems like in a lot of sermons as I was looking back through them, I just haven't used it in a while. And I came up with a sentence. It's not a summary. I used to come up with summaries and then we'd unpack the summary. This is just a sentence and it's a bit of a clunky one. Uh, but this sentence will serve as the sermon outline. So I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to put it on the screens and we'll, then we're going to break it into parts. Uh, to, to, to kind of follow through on the sermon. So here it goes. Lord willing, it'll be on the screen because it's long. Our focus is on what a healthy gospel church looks like according to this text. And I would put it this way. A gospel church is founded upon a shared gospel identity and sound gospel doctrine marked by gospel confidence and gospel hope, which produces gospel growth and gospel mission. All right. That's just going to stay there. That's a mouthful. You can continue to write it down if you want it. Take a picture uh, if you want it. Um, and that may be a run on sentence. I'm not sure. But this is a sermon. Grammar doesn't really matter uh, in sermons. All right. So uh, we're going to take that sentence and break it down. And you've probably noticed all the underlined words. Those are those are kind of the points of the sermon. So you can look ahead. We got six points uh, to cover in this sermon and a few sub points. So we'll get there. All right. Now. Before we get to that, I'm going to press the pause button and take things uh, down a bit of a rabbit trail and then kind of get back on uh, the right trail. Um, I have the mic. I have freedom to do that. So you just kind of got to follow with me. I want to sort of go Romans 16 for just a moment. If you know Romans 16, you might know where I'm going. So we're looking at what this text teaches about a healthy gospel church, which means we're going to miss so much of the text. We're going to miss a lot of Paul's attitude and actions and posture 
that, that we, we could learn so much from here. But I'm going to take a moment and lean into at least part of Paul's posture and maybe try to apply it to my own life in front of you and with you for just a moment. So when you read this letter, if you know anything of Philippians and you just heard it in the text that was read, we can just feel. I mean, you, you can just feel and almost smell and just just almost embraced by Paul's gratitude and joy. It's just overflowing. It's oozing out of him. Well, this is where no one in the room would ever mistake me for Paul. Okay? No one in my life who has ever been asked, hey, what is Corey like? So if you know me, somebody asks you, what is Corey like? No one's initial thought has ever been, you know, Corey is just full of gratitude and joy. Like That's not me. I receive and represent that line of thinking. No pushback whatsoever. I certainly do not exude those things. They are not oozing out of me. They are there. Okay, there is gratitude and joy in me, but they don't ooze out of me. Okay? So, alright, with that, let, let's, let's just get this over with. So, let's get this over with. And when I say let's get this over with, I don't mean what I'm about to do is insincere, undeserving. I mean it's unnatural for me. To do what I'm about to do. Okay. There are a few things in particular I struggle with. Thank you. I'm sorry. And you're right. Those things are unnatural for me. I'm about to lean into one of them and leave the other two for another day. So Paul thanked God for the Philippians and his thankfulness was primarily according to verse five because of their partnership in the gospel. Which is a very pregnant word, but it generally points to their fellowship in the gospel and their shared aim in the spread of the gospel. Okay, their fellowship in the gospel and their shared aim in the spread of the gospel. And it's considering this partnership language that causes me to be thankful and causes me to apply this text to my own life. So as I survey my life currently and historically, I realize how many people have partnered with me in the gospel. And not in the exact same way they partnered with Paul, never been in prison for the gospel, but I do realize how many have come alongside of me and aided me in this journey. So many people that deserve to be thanked. And big qualification, I can't possibly thank everyone, but I'm going to name a few and I'm going to try to make it quick. Okay? Again, out of my element here. So, just bear with me. Give me a little grace here. I need to thank, she's not here, but I need to thank my mom for the resilience and sacrificial love that she demonstrated to me on a daily and yearly and weekly basis. I need to thank my dad for the work ethic he instilled in me. I need to thank the church at Brook Hills for all that they did for me over eight years. I need to thank... In particular, David Platt and Jim Shaddix for all that they poured into me in mentoring me. I need to thank Reeves Construction for their sacrificial support of me. I've done this bivocationally for eight years. They have been behind me 100% and incredibly flexible. Um, I need to thank so many members of this faith family, of this body. And I just ask that you would allow me to thank a select few and not in any way discount my gratefulness and thankfulness for each of you. Okay? So just allow me to thank a select few. Okay? Eight years of ministry here for me does not happen without people like Blake and Amy Palmer and Adam and Shannon Cress. I think, as Paul said, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. 
David and Becca Burnett, Kyle and Jessica Walker. There's more than one that's been serving bivocationally here. This does not happen apart from God's grace through those two families that have given more to this church than you could ever ask or imagine. David Brown, is he hiding somewhere? He's in the back. David Brown, what what to say, right? Um, David thought he was stubborn until I got here. So thank you, brother, for putting up with me. Thank you, Susanna, for helping him put up with me. Thank you both for serving this church so well. Again, I want to thank everyone, but there is a text in front of us and a clock that haunts us. Special thanks to every nursery worker who has persevered through sermons that seemed endless. Seriously, thank you so much. There is a special blessing in heaven waiting for every one of you, and that probably is all of you over eight years. Okay. Thank you to Mackenzie, my oldest. She was five. When we arrived, I think she was five when we arrived. She has spent most of her time here on an island as the only girl her age. I'm so thankful for the way in which she has embraced that and really flourished in that. Jackson and Chandler, thank you for attempting to be quiet during so many Sunday afternoon naps and for dealing with the grumpy version of dad every Sunday afternoon. All right, one more, uh, last but not least, so to speak. Thank you to Nicole, my wife. Um, the best thing that ever happened to this church eight years ago was that when you affirmed me, you got her. So um, just think about it. For eight years, she has not only had to put up with me, but she's had to put up with you. <laughs> so she is incredibly gracious. No, seriously, thank you, Nicole, for your sacrificial support of me and sacrificial service for this uh, church. So thank you all for your partnership in the gospel. So I am forever different and forever grateful for all that you have done. Okay, now that I'm seriously uncomfortable, let me get back to my comfort zone. Um, I don't think I was outside of the bounds of application of this text, but I'm more comfortable simply unpacking the text. So let's get to our sentence. Uh, I've got it broken down into three parts, and we'll cover the underlying phrases in each part. Part one, a gospel church is founded upon a shared gospel identity and sound gospel doctrine. So this is the key part. You get this part of the sentence wrong, the rest of it is meaningless, pointless, just leave it behind. So first, a gospel church is founded upon shared gospel identity. So how does Paul start his letters? The gospel. Okay, dude couldn't say hello without the gospel. It just oozed out of him. Very, when the pen hit paper, it was gospel for Paul. And these letters that we see that have similar beginnings at times, this is not a first century form letter. Every word here is so meaningful and deep. Every word of the introduction of letters is meaningful and deep. And one thing I want us to see here, we've got so much we can't cover, but I want, to, I want you to see this word saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. That one sentence helps us to see clearly the identity of those that Paul is writing to. So what, what is a saint? Just an old, dead, semi-famous Christian that might have written something? That's not how Paul used it. To be a saint is to be set apart. And to cut to the chase, to be a saint is to be a Christian. Okay, those are synonymous. He's simply saying to all the Christians in Philippi, all those that have been set apart by God. And don't miss the part about them being in Christ, saints in Christ. It's almost redundant, as if you don't really need that. Saints in Christ, Christians in Christ. You can't really be a saint in someone else. 
To be a saint or a Christian, biblically speaking, means you are in Christ, which means you are united to him by faith. There is gospel identity at play here. The church in Philippi and every other gospel church in history finds their identity as being saints in Christ. That's the glue that holds the fabric of the church together. That is the center and gravitational pull of every gospel church. We don't have time to turn there, but uh, Acts 16, if you want to go there one day and look at the beginning of the church in Philippi. Okay, this was the first church planted by Paul in Europe, literally a game changer, a world changer. And to say that that church was diverse at the beginning is an understatement. According to Acts chapter 16, three of the first members of the church at Philippi were a a clothing designer named Lydia, a former demon possessed slave girl and a guy who worked in a jail. And we don't really know much about the rest of the members, but just take those three, for instance, those three, along with whoever else joined the church, don't come together without the gospel. It just does not happen. They don't end up making up one of the healthiest churches recorded in Scripture without a shared gospel identity, without something that overcomes the deepest barriers and the biggest walls that exist between people. What else did they have in common? What else would keep them together? What else would cause them to love one another and love others in the way that we see in this letter? This is where we, as Philadelphia Baptist Church, need to never forget that we are founded upon and centered around a shared gospel identity. The gospel is the glue that holds this church together. If you don't have that, you don't have a church. If you are not constantly leaning into, being reminded of, continually rehearsing and applying the truth that the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon us. Okay, we can, we can make it personal here. He looked upon us and sent His Son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to bear His wrath against sin on the cross. And to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that when we, each of us, turn from our sin and turn toward him to trust in him, we are reconciled to God forever. If that message ever slides from the center, the very scenes of this church will fracture and we will fall apart. And deservedly so. We're founded upon a shared gospel identity. We are here because of the gospel and we will remain and live here Because of the gospel. We're first and foremost saints in Christ. Before we are anything else. So first the gospel church is founded upon a shared gospel identity. And second upon sound gospel doctrine. Now a lot of overlap with that first point. As I mentioned earlier verse 5 gives us the reason for Paul's gratitude. It's because of this partnership. But this partnership has an important qualifier. It's a partnership in the gospel. And that's implying a lot, okay? They are connected by the gospel and they have a shared mission in the gospel. But here's where we need not forget that the gospel is is a message. It's news. And it's accompanied by a lot of teaching. You might say that there is a narrow use of the word gospel that we see and then a wider use of the word gospel. 
The narrow use would be something like what I just said a minute ago. The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people, sent his son. Okay, that that would be more of a narrow use. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus. The wider use would be that there's so much more content that, as the Bible says, accords with the gospel. Like in First Timothy, Paul, same author there, in the context of talking about a lot of unhealthy things that they need to avoid, he says those things are contrary to what he calls sound doctrine. And then he goes on to say this sound doctrine accords with the gospel. There's a set of teaching, according to Paul, that accords with the gospel. And he labeled it sound doctrine. I'm just sort of rolling it all together and saying gospel doctrine. We are founded upon gospel doctrine. What is it? Well, specifically, Paul's probably talking about the apostles' teaching, which was what? What Christ had taught them, which included in part what? A proper understanding and application of the Old Testament. So you could take it all and sort of backtrack and say, it's the Bible. Gospel doctrine is this word. It's what I'm holding right here. It's what we open up every Sunday. It's what informs our prayers and our singing and our preaching. When you go to Acts 16 and you look at the founding of this church, what is Paul teaching? Gospel doctrine. He's teaching sound doctrine. What are he and the Philippians looking to uphold and disseminate? Gospel doctrine. Again, you go to First Timothy and Paul calls the church there the pillar or the church in general, just the pillar and buttress of truth. We've looked at that in First Timothy, meaning the church holds, holds tightly to, it holds up and holds out the word. That's what the church's role is. So we are a collection of saints with a shared identity in Christ who are founded upon the word of Christ. This is the reason this word drives what we do. It's the reason it must continue and always drive what we do. It's, there's a reason that this word right now, since it sits up on this pulpit and it sits central, sits central to us because of how important it is. This word resides at the foundation of who we are as a church. May we never part from it. So, need to move on, but let, let, me make, let me make a point real quick that I should have made earlier. I think I skipped over this. Unlike some letters, Paul's main, I think I implied this earlier, but I didn't say it specifically. Paul, unlike some of his letters, Paul's main exhortation here is not stop it. Okay? Corinthians, you, you can walk away and say the main exhortation is just stop it. Okay? Just stop what you're doing. I think his main exhortation here would be keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. So the clarification here is there is no admonition in this sermon. This is not me saying we need to do these things. It's me saying we need to increase in these things. All right. Let's remain faithful. Let's keep growing. It will be rewarded. Okay. Think about it. If if this could be labeled as one of the healthiest churches that we have recorded in Scripture, and Paul is so affectionate about this church, but yet he decides to write these things and say, all right, just, just keep going, keep it up, okay? Even a well-old machine needs maintenance at times, and we are far from a well-old machine, so, so let's keep it up. All right, next part of the sentence. A gospel church is founded upon a shared gospel identity and sound gospel doctrine. Next, marked by gospel confidence and gospel hope. So, what are a couple of markers of 
the church that Paul signals for us. A couple of indications of a a church that has this shared identity and sound doctrine. First, we should get an indication of gospel confidence. Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Note Paul's confidence in that language, and therefore I think the confidence the church can have. He doesn't say that this work might be brought to completion. He doesn't hope that it will. He is sure that it will. Why? Why is certainty? What are the grounds of his confidence? Well, first and foremost, it's clear it's God. His confidence is grounded in God. The he there is God. He, God began a good work in you. God will see it to completion. You could shorten that and sum it up and say the church can have gospel confidence because God is sovereign. God is in control. The throne of the universe has one seat on it and it fits one person and that person is God and no one else. The the car has one steering wheel. It's not the driver's ed car where somebody else might grab the wheel and turn it. God didn't let us put our hands on the steering wheel. He doesn't let Satan elevate anybody else. God is driving this thing. God is on the throne and no one can take him off of it. Therefore, Paul has confidence this will happen. The church founded upon a shared identity and sound doctrine can have the utmost of confidence, not because they're cool. We're not a cool church, according to Kyle. You can ask him that story one day. They can, a church doesn't have confidence because they're great or because the amount of resources they have or the great ideas they come up with or how many members they have or how great their leaders are. Some of those things are good. Not all those things are bad, but our confidence is not in anything that we have, but solely in who we know and who is in control. I I stand here today as confident in where this church is headed as I was eight years ago. And it has nothing to do with the credentials that Ryan Adams has or with Burnett or Kyle or Brown or you. It has everything to do with God. Our standing and progress in the church is rooted in what God has done, is doing, and will do. God promises to accompany His people with His commands so we can with confidence lean into Being faithful. So God is first and foremost the grounds of this gospel confidence. But there's a secondary matter here that also feeds into this certainty. There's something that we can look at that affirms where our allegiance is and therefore boosts our confidence all the more that God will see it to completion. So Paul is thanking God for this church's partnership in the gospel. And that partnership for Paul was tangible and real. He hadn't just heard about it. He had felt it. He had received it. It was expressed to him through works, through prayer, through giving, through practical care. Paul is confident in this church and therefore they can be confident because their trust in God, their faith in Christ was being made manifest. So think about how can someone discern who is a Christian and who is not in part by what their works, their fruit, the fruit of their lives. What does their life look like? How can you, in part, assess a healthy gospel church? What does that church look like? What are they doing? Obviously what they believe, but what are they doing? Why does Paul have so much confidence 
in the church in Philippi because he has literally tasted their care. He has seen their works in action. He has felt it. Maybe frame it like this. Paul's in prison in Rome when he's writing this. Let's imagine that a young reporter comes over and asks Paul. They're talking to Paul, interviewing, getting his life story. And he keeps bringing up this church in Philippi. And as a matter of fact, there's a guy sitting on the outside of the jail that just keeps bringing stuff to Paul while he's there, kind of ministering to his needs. And he tells the reporter, he says that she starts asking about this church in Philippi. He says, that's a gospel church. That church is going to make it. God's got that church. And the reporter proceeds to ask, well, how can you have such confidence in this church, Paul? People don't, I don't know if people like the church in our day. Well, Paul says, God's got this thing. That's why I have confidence. And she goes, well, why do you know God's got this thing? Why do you know that God's got that church? He says, because they're Christians, because they love the gospel. And she goes, well, how do you know that's true, Paul? And he goes, just look at how they live. Look at their actions. Look at what they've done for me. I can testify firsthand that God's going to see it to completion. Paul's confidence comes through knowing God's character and seeing their works. He knows God's character and he has seen their works. Works that testify to the fact that they indeed have a shared gospel identity and a sound gospel doctrine. So a gospel church is marked by a gospel confidence and second, it's marked by gospel hope. Hard to differentiate between the last point and this one, but I just want to ensure that we we have sort of a future looking aspect of this. So called one confidence, one hope, but they're really connected. Paul ensures that we pay attention here to the end that will come twice in the text. He points us to what he labels the day of Christ, the day of Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 10, that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What's the day? What is the day of Christ? The day Jesus returns. That, that's the end, judgment day, the final day. Jesus came, lived, died, rose, ascended, is coming back one day. The day of that return, that's the day he's talking about. Paul is signaling that we can have hope in view of that day. Not dread, but hope in view of that day. Because God is preparing us for it. We can have confidence that God will see us through to a future that we can have hope in. So think about it. You know, when a a, a sports team is planning or practicing for a game, or when they're having the team meeting beforehand and the coaches talking to them about the game, most good teams have some level of confidence that they're going to win the game. A good team has some level of confidence they're going to go out there and win, but they can't guarantee the win. What we are talking about here is a guaranteed win. This is going into the game with a W already in the record books. We can have hope. Paul can be confident here. The church can be confident. We can be confident that if we have a shared identity in Christ, then we have a certain destiny in Christ. Jesus does not lose one that the Father gave him. Names written in the book do not get erased. They are not in pencil. They are in permanent marker. Your questions for this day, for the day of Christ, your questions do not rest in the realm of if and maybe. They reside in the realm of how soon. It's coming and in Christ you are good. 
And as Peter says, those in Christ have been born again to a living hope, a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable. So he's pointing ahead. You have a living, you have a hope now because you have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, it's waiting for you. Our feelings or present performance don't make this any less true. One author put it this way, he said, we, we are often neglectful, frequently failing, ever inadequate, yet the end is secure for God is at work. Just like gospel confidence, gospel hope it has its basis in God, the one who starts everything and the one who finishes it. All right, keep moving. Last section of the sentence, the gospel church is founded upon a shared gospel identity and sound gospel doctrine marked by gospel confidence and gospel hope. And finally, which produces gospel growth and gospel mission, gospel growth and gospel mission. So a couple of products, a couple of things that this shared identity and this sound doctrine produce. Okay, things that are produced from this confidence and this hope that we have. First, this produces gospel growth, gospel growth. Starting at verse 3, Paul tells the Philippians uh, how and why he's thankful for them, expresses that to God. In verse 9, he expresses his prayer for them moving forward. Okay, here's my prayer for you moving forward. And as you read it, you realize that he's, he's simply praying for what they already have in measure and how he wants it to increase. He's not praying for these things to begin in their lives. He's praying for the furtherance and growth of it. Paul desires this healthy gospel church to experience healthy gospel growth. Just listen to it again. These are things they obviously have. He wants them to increase. And it is my prayer that your love may abound. Okay. It may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and the praise of God. Praying for what they already have to increase all the more. It's just an indicator, one indicator that we will never arrive. Okay? Not in this life. We as individuals and we as a church will never arrive. We will never be at a place of complacency in the church. The moment you get to a place of complacency is the moment you started going backwards. It's all about progress. We may, in fact, be listening in on what Paul has to say about one of the healthiest churches he knows. Yet even for this church, he wants growth. He wants advancement. Don't sit still, move forward. So what sort of growth does he pray for? What does he want to increase? A few sub points here just to kind of hit quickly on some of these. First, Paul wants to see gospel growth in love. In love. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. It's hard to know specifically if he's talking about love for one another in the church, love for God or love for others outside of the church. It seems most fitting based on the language and the context that he's praying that their love for one another would grow. But really, you cannot disconnect our love for one another or for others from our love from God, because our love for others, for each other, flows out of our love for God. You cannot say as a Christian I love God, but I don't love other people. That's, that doesn't work. Doesn't work in God's economy. 
So either way, if he's praying for their love of one another to increase, he's indirectly praying for their love of God and their love of others to increase. So, but generally speaking, Paul wants their love for one another to increase. Probably not earth-shattering to say that our love never reaches perfection for one another. As soon as we think that we love one another well, then we do something to make each other mad. And it feels like we're starting all over again. So we should pray and pursue increasing love for one another. So many things that will attract people to a church. Some things are good, some things are profound, some things are not great, some things are very shallow. A lot of things may draw people in, but only one thing will truly captivate them when they get there. A deep love that puts aside personal preferences and selfish ambition and envy and competition. A love that sacrifices for the good of those around them. A love that is willing to be put out so that others can be welcomed in. A love that says, you're more important than me. Your needs and your desires are more important than my own. So Paul wants love to increase. But it's not an unqualified love. He keeps going. He wants to see gospel growth in love that also grows in knowledge. This love is to abound more and more with knowledge. It's hard to nail down exactly what he's talking about there. Knowledge can refer to knowledge of God. Of God's righteousness, of Jesus, of God's will, of sin, of truth in general, of everything good. It's an all-encompassing knowledge. Probably just has spiritual knowledge in mind. He wants the Philippians to increase, be increasing in their understanding of why they should love and how they should love. Again, it's love increasing in knowledge. So it's all about why I should love and how I should love. What's behind it? What should I do? This is knowledge of God and of his ways and in particular the manner in which he loves us and wants us to love other people. So it's a qualified love. We could sum it up this way. Paul wants us increasing in love, but he wants us increasing in love based on his word. Based on God's word. Okay, this, this is not an instruction manual on love, but it is a guide, for sure. We have no shortage of text that tell us how we're to love one another in the church. No shortage of texts that tell us how to love those outside the church. No shortage of texts that tell us how to love God. The problem is not with an availability of knowledge. It will be in our growth of that knowledge and our application of it. Which leads to Paul's, which leads to the next point and Paul's second qualifier. We don't just grow in love that grows in knowledge, but also that grows in discernment. Our love grows in knowledge and discernment. So think about it. We have an abundance of knowledge on love. What's going to be needed with that abundance of knowledge is discernment to, to know how to use it and know how to apply it. What Paul has in mind here is the spiritual ability to make difficult decisions in the midst of competing ideas and confusing choices. Anybody think that applies to our day? Listen to this again. I think what Paul has in mind here is the spiritual ability to make difficult decisions in the midst of competing ideas and confusing choices when it comes to 
who we love and how we love. This is why he says in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. You need an increasing love, a love that increases in knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Paul doesn't want a gullible love in the church that lacks wisdom. He wants a love governed by wisdom and discernment. Think about it. We are called to love people, love each other, but not in a way that encourages sin. Is that always easy to figure out? Is that a layup? Okay, I want you to love one another, but not in a way that encourages sin. There's going to be some gray areas there. If you don't believe there are gray areas, become an elder. Okay? Just leave the church or talk to an elder. They will help you see the abundance of gray areas on how you love and don't encourage sin. I was looking back through sermon notes. Apparently I've said a lot of times love doesn't always involve a hug. I think that fits here. Sometimes it's tough love. Paul's not willing to settle for mediocre love. We should not settle for mediocre love in the church. Easy love in the church. Paul wants a growing love that's knowledgeable and discerning. A love that distinguishes the things that really matter. He doesn't stop at praying for a growing love that's knowledgeable and discerning. He just keeps going. He wants, he wants this for the sake of purity. He wants them to grow in purity. Verse 10. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul is aiming at an increasing love that leads to a comprehensive holiness. An increasing love that leads to a comprehensive holiness. Such devotion will keep the church pure and blameless for that day, as he says. He brings up that day. He wants purity that pervades our lives in such a way that charges can't be brought against us, all leading to a life that is just filled with righteousness. We could chase down every bit of that, but here's the connection I don't want you to miss. Paul is connecting the way in which we love one another in the church with how we will be presented on that day. Paul is connecting the way in which we love one another in the church with how we will be presented on that day. How about that for heightening the importance of church membership and commitment? Put that in the membership class. Paul, you know, Paul says your love in the church is connected to you being presented pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Again. He's praying for these things which are already evident. He wants them to increase. And that would be my same prayer for this church. That there would be gospel growth in knowledge, in knowledgeable discerning love. May we grow in knowledgeable discerning love which produces purity. All right, last point. Sound identity and sound doctrine marked by gospel confidence and hope produces gospel growth as well as gospel mission. Gospel mission. You know, Romans, if you've ever read the letter to the Romans or the book of Romans, it's like a missionary support letter with a really long, robust introduction. Really long. robust. It's like attaching a support request to the end of a systematic theology book. Philippians is more like a missionary thank you or update letter. Okay, A little bit different than... Romans. So generally, he's thankful, as we know, for their partnership. Their partnership, he says, from the first day until now, according to verse 4. From the first day until now. 
And he fleshes out some of the details of the partnership in verse 7, talking about how they were partakers with him of grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So whether Paul is in prison, whether he's in chains, or whether he's trying to convince people of the truth of the gospel, they are there with him. They have stood behind him. They have supported him. This church has offered sacrificial prayer. They've given sacrificially. They've been there practically alongside of him. They have cared for Paul over and over again. They cared for him when it first started. We know from this letter that they had sent someone to help Paul in prison. Roman prisons didn't didn't just say, here's your cot and your three meals a day. Like Paul was dependent on others for his survival. And the church of Philippi said, we got you. In whatever circumstance, they were there. I think Philippians is every healthy missionary's dream church. Alex, next church you go to, just get some standalone copies of Philippians and just hand them out. And when they ask you what they need to do, just say, read this and apply it. That goes for us, too. How do we support Sissons and Shepherds and Hilmers, King Jesus Church? Read Philippians and apply it. A church that prays, a church that gives, a church that is there, a church who is there all the more when the circumstances are less than ideal. This is not so, this is, this is so much more than a church that has a line item in the budget that says missions. This is a church that is sold out to see the gospel defended and advanced. A church with a shared gospel identity and a sound gospel doctrine does not lock their doors and keep that in. We don't try to keep that shared identity and that sound doctrine in. We open the doors and try to get it out as far as we can. A church that is deeply concerned for the gospel is genuinely focused on its spread. A lot of generations represented here in this church. PBC has a rich history for being both deeply concerned for the gospel and genuinely focused on its spread. It's had its ups and downs. We can own that. Sometimes that fire has been reduced to an ember, but it's, it's not been extinguished. So let's pray together that God would use our shared identity in Christ and our sound gospel doctrine and our gospel confidence and hope to cause an ever increasing concern for the gospel and an unceasing focus on the spread of the gospel, both here and among all nations. Wouldn't it be cool if... Somebody that partners with us would write a letter like this back. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you making my prayer with joy. Just imagine one of our partners in prison for the gospel saying this. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Don't you want to hear this? Don't you want to hear this from somebody? 
And that sounds selfish, but that's a good kind of selfish. Don't we want someone to say, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Just pray that somebody says that about us. Now, if our confidence and our hope and our growth and the mission, if all of these are grounded in our identity and dependent on that identity, then there is no better way than I can think to land this plane for potentially the last time than with this meal. Like, what better way? I didn't, I didn't design this. I didn't pick March 5th, first Sunday of a month. But what better way to be reminded of our shared identity in Jesus Christ than with this meal? Let me go ahead and invite those up that are serving. So, this meal represents, just, just think about what this meal represents. This meal represents what it took for us to be here today and to be able to claim the name saints and to rest firmly in Christ. This meal represents that, that it took nothing less than the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ so that we can sit here and be called saints. So this text has a spirit of thanksgiving in it. That being the case, let's let's carry that spirit into our observing of this meal. Let's thank God as this is being distributed. And before we partake, let's thank God for what he has done to save us, to bring us together, to give us this shared identity and this sound doctrine and then to send us out. So we're about to distribute these elements, and as we do, let's, let's spend time. Let's do two things, all right? First, thank God for our shared identity in Christ. Thank Him for what He's done in Christ. And then from that, pray that God would produce in us, in the days ahead, both gospel growth and increase in gospel mission. So move from thanksgiving to petition. Thank you for what Christ has done. Increase, grow us and increase our zeal to see what you've done in us go elsewhere. Okay? So, that's what we're going to do. For any here that don't know Jesus, okay? This is a meal reserved for those that are in Christ, saints in Christ. We are thankful that you're here. We hope that, we hope that you've gotten some clarity on the gospel, maybe some clarity on the church. It's our prayer that you would join us on this journey as we thank God and then look to grow, but we would just ask that you would let this pass as you observe a people bought at a high price. Observe a meal that our Lord has given us, and we'd love to talk with you more afterwards. So let me pray for us, distribute these elements, and, and as we do, let's thank God for our identity, thank God for the gospel, and pray for growth and increase in mission. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for sound gospel doctrine, for a shared gospel identity, 
for what you have done in Christ to save us, bring us together, and then to send us out. Help us to reflect on that now and then help us to petition you for just all the more. Cause us to grow and increase in faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.